It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. One of the great joys of the aquarium hobby is that despite our careful planning, stuff can happen to our tanks that we didn't anticipate, and not all of it is bad. We spend an awful lot of time worrying about every contingency, stressing you know, over how our tanks are going to operate or why X or Y happened despite our you know, extensive planning to avoid this stuff. And often, whatever it was that happened wasn't all that bad. We as hobbyists just tend to classify anything which doesn't go exactly to plan as an issue. I was talking to one of my friends recently about what was going on in his cool fish room. He has all kinds of cool stuff going on. And he was telling me that he was just looking to see what fishes were breaking out and which ones could be doing better and which ones were in trouble. It's like kind of a cool, useful practice that many of us engage in with our tanks. You know, we kind of observe to see what's going on. Now, he reflected that on any given day in a lot of fish rooms, you'll find fishes or tanks that are kicking ass, some that could look better, and some that just decline for no apparent reason. We used to see this in reef aquariums a lot. No apparent reason. I find that expression, I don't know, intriguing. Familiar words, actually. I hear them when talking to fellow hobbyists who, when talking about the goings-on in their aquariums, will say things like, and they were looking great the other day, and today they're just failing to thrive for no apparent reason. You see it on the forums, or at least a dozen threads a day about, you know, anomalous fish losses. This is not some new thing. It's not even an unusual thing. It happens a lot. In a given community of organisms, all sorts of stuff happens from day to day. Back when I owned a, uh, co-owned a large coral propagation operation with thousands of corals under our care, we needed to assess and get to the bottom of whatever went wrong because if it spread, it could have jeopardized large amounts of inventory. And that's not good when you make a living growing corals. Oh, sure, we had safeguards in place, but sometimes stuff slips through and people make mistakes and you need to attempt to find the root cause of the problem lest it occur elsewhere in your facility with disastrous consequences. Now, over the years, I've learned that there is always a reason why fishes or corals struggle or die. We, we may not always find the one factor, the one thing that did it, the smoking gun or whatever, but there's always a reason or a bunch of reasons why the fishes or corals didn't make it. It's not, you know, just because. The explanation may be beyond our ability to decipher, but it's out there. Stuff, good and bad, just doesn't happen for no apparent reason. It just doesn't. On the other hand, sometimes you can't seem to pin it down, right? You go through the mental checklist of things that you do, some change in the usual you know, product additions or feedings or procedures or whatever. You look at water parameters, you search for trends. You look for one thing you did differently two days ago that could have been the trigger for the calamity, and still the answer eludes you. The unfortunate, unscientific, and altogether unsatisfying conclusion that we come up with after exhausting the obvious and even the obscure is often the fish simply died for no apparent reason. This sucks. Uh, It's frustrating because, of course, there are reasons why the fish has died. Often it's more than one factor that contributed, and you can't find them. You can't pin down that cause. So without sounding like the proverbial, you know, broken record, this just reinforces the usefulness of practices like regular water testing, 
because when tests are performed regularly and evaluated frequently, you'll spot trends, both good and bad. Trends are super important in aquarium management, aren't they? They really are. They help you see what direction your system's headed. They help you see if parameters are stable, swinging all over, or just headed in one direction or another. Without getting too caught up in the you know big data, you can get some good feeling for how your tank is doing by sifting through your test results from time to time. This seems obvious, but you'd be surprised how many of us don't do this. Every, you know, there's no substitute at all for the simple and quite often enjoyable act of just looking at your aquarium. Every parameter is important, but if your tank looks like shit, it really doesn't matter if phosphate is 0.4 parts per million or for that matter, 0.8 parts per million. Your eyes are probably on one of the best, you know, they probably are one of the best aquarium devices ever conceived. <laughs> you just need to apply them regularly. You need to use them. In our busy lives, the surprisingly simple act of allocating the time to just look at our beautiful tanks sometimes eludes us. And how ironic is that, right? We spend all this time and yeah. So what's the altogether unsatisfying conclusion of this little discussion? Well, sometimes you just can't find the source of the decline in your aquarium or why you lost that particular fish. Sometimes the data simply eludes us. There are a lot of moving parts in a typical aquarium, and the failure of any one of them may or may not trigger a problem. It can be frustrating ferreting out which one of the five dozen possible things that could have gone wrong might have led to the problem that you experienced. And it's very easy to simply overthink, overanalyze everything. Just don't beat the shit out of yourself by overthinking stuff. I think there's something about tropical fish and aquariums in general that invites overthinking of stuff. Yeah, we kind of made a damn art form of it. In the case in point, algae blooms. Now, we analyze every possible cause, sometimes embracing, you know, uh, or embarking on multiple courses of action, and then ultimately realize that it boils down to the fact that we had, you know, didn't change our RO uh, uh, membrane, and there was excessive amounts of phosphate or nitrate or something in the water, something that could have been addressed first and with appropriate actions taken, and it would have solved the problem much faster. Sometimes we attack the problem, but spend valuable time on the wrong part of the problem. What about disease outbreaks? I get a lot of emails from aquarists trying to figure out how the new fish they bought, you know, caused the disease outbreak. You know, it looked healthy at the local fish store and they, they quarantine all their fishes when the reality is that it did. Uh, and, you know, that would be far better focusing on the solution, that being removing the fishes to a treatment aquarium and for the future, instituting your own rigid quarantine protocol for future additions, not depending on other people. We already know the answers to some things, and I think that we just sometimes don't like to hear them. We know that we need to quarantine new fishes for maximum protection. We just don't always want to execute on that. We know how to solve most of the problems that we encounter in the hobby. I really believe that. As a group, we're actually pretty damn good at aquarium keeping. A century or so of this modern aquarium keeping experience has definitely paid off. Yet, sometimes, we make things more complicated than we need to, adding layers of Complexity to problems though that, you know, although important or critical, can be more than adequately addressed by simply doing something we already know how to do. Water quality is important in closed systems. Water exchanges are simple, they're economical, and probably one of the best things we can do as aquarists to keep our fishes healthy for long periods of time. We know this. Many aquarists just absolutely despise them and they'll go to great and often expensive lengths to avoid doing them or to make them less onerous. Yet an entire cottage industry of gadgets, procedures, and all that stuff exists around the premise of eliminating water changes or reducing water exchanges, whatever. 
I mean, how many hobbyists do you know developed automatic water change systems with their aquariums and with a lot of experiment, you know, experiments and complexity and labor and all that stuff and sometimes consequences. In fact, I know of at least two hobbyists who had to submit homeowners insurance claims due to damages caused by their automatic water exchange system that they designed and built. So why not just perform a water exchange the old-fashioned way? A siphon hose and a bucket can do wonders. It's not even that big a deal. It gets you intimately involved with your tank, and it doesn't take all that much time. I think that even scientists tend to reinvent the wheel and make things related to aquariums more complicated than they have to be sometimes. I remember seeing a segment on one of those cable news magazine shows not too long ago about how scientists were working on this novel way to help restore coral reefs that were threatened by global warming. And how they went to all this effort to collect, you know, planular larvae, let them settle in the lab, then attach the young corals to rocks on a reef. And correcting larvae is really difficult, time-consuming, and resource-draining. I could not help but reflect upon the fact that we as hobbyists have been fragmenting and propagating a lot of corals for, I don't know, almost 30 years now, both at a personal and even at a commercial level, literally cutting them into fragments, gluing them to ceramic plugs or rocks, and we grow them in the tens of thousands all over the world, Coral farming is not some esoteric theoretical thing. It's being done every day on a practical level. I remember watching the show and I was like, guys, if you need to restore a coral reef, just visit the local reef club meeting. They'll hook you up. Why are you making it so complicated? Now, granted, there's a bit more to it than that. And I can't downplay the achievements of the scientists involved collecting and studying larvae and all that stuff. But man, if you want to restore a reef quickly, why not just make some frags? And the best part of this segment was that there was an admission by a scientist working on the project who said something to the effect that, you know, as scientists, we're great at studying corals, but not great at growing them. So what did they do? They actually did turn to aquarists. I knew they would get there eventually. It's also long been a reef hobby joke that scientific institutions generally, and I say generally, have reef aquariums in their facilities that are less impressive than the average home aquarium. Granted, there's many awesome reef tanks at public aquariums. That's, that's a terrible generalization. But generally to a hobbyist, just a surprisingly large number of them are, I don't know, underwhelming, but despite the obvious availability of manpower, equipment, and resources available to the institutions who create and manage them. My advice has always been just call a local aquarium club, tell them what you need, and be done with it already. They'll hook you up. You don't think a hobbyist would literally crawl over each other? you know, to be involved in a project like that with a public aquarium. I think that's cool. Now, I know this is a harsh, overly generalized and sort of unfair assessment, but yeah, it serves as an example of how um, aquarists often tend to overthink aquarium-related stuff, even at higher levels, you know, public aquariums. As aquarium hobbyists, one of the, you know, we think of the time, the money, and the aggravation that we can save if we just focus on the actual problem and don't overthink the ways to solve it. In fact, Sometimes it involves not micromanaging every aspect, controlling each and every aspect of what goes on in our tanks. Sometimes just sitting back and letting things unfold is the best strategy. As a lifelong hobbyist, I've probably been through periods of time when I couldn't devote as much you know, attention to my beloved fish tanks as I couldn't previously. Yet I always had one, fresh, salt, or whatever. It's just not a home unless you hear that you know, reassuring popping of bubbles and the worrying of pumps and the reflections caused by light and you know, moving water, that kind of stuff. Of course, there were a number of times that, for one reason or another, I simply let my tanks sort of run themselves, you know, save an occasional water exchange or media cleaning or, you know, regular feeding, which consists of tossing in a few pellets or whatever was on hand at the time, you know, putting Mother Nature in control. A particularly fond memory of this type of practice comes from my senior year in high school when I was seriously into breeding killifishes, in addition to, you know, keeping saltwater, cichlids, tetras, and of course, the usual high school pursuits of 
girls, sports, and socializing. <laughs> As a junior member of the American Killifish Association, I obtained a group of the clown killie, which was then known as Epiplates annulatus monroviae, and was determined to breed these little buggers. Now, of course, that species always had a reputation for being just a bit of a challenge, requiring you know careful care and feeding and a fair measure of patience. And as a busy kid, I didn't have that much patience, although probably more than the average high school guy. After all, I was a fish geek. So I was really thrilled to learn that these little guys were thought to fare better in permanent and natural setups, which is fish geek code for set and forget, right? So of course, in a rather strange twist, I thought that this species was perfect for my busy lifestyle at the time. So I set up two pairs and a few extra females in a two and a half gallon tank that was planted, well, packed with water sprite, I think hygrophila and rotala. Given a little bit of moderate light from a small fixture and a sponge filter for circulation and filtration. This tank looked good and ran just fine with little intervention on my part. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit that I would sometimes go a week or more without so much as looking in the tank long enough to just toss some food in there. Yeah, it was pretty bad. One day though, I think it was during spring break, I actually took the time to really stare in the tank to see what was going on. And sure enough, upon really close examination, I saw several little tiny fry swimming in and among the rotala that I was, you know, in, had, I had in the tank and I was elated. Now, rather than panic and start hatching brine shrimp and all that stuff, I made a very mature, at the time, and level-headed decision to simply leave them alone, as I'd been doing for months. I resisted the temptation to net them out, power feed them, and otherwise intervene. I reasoned that I could hardly do better than what they were apparently being you know, provided by Mother Nature in that tank, and as they've done for eons. And, I, you know, I like this. as a, It's a big part of my current philosophy on aquarium keeping, too. Mother Nature does a really good job. I ultimately ended up with a pretty stable population of around 12 to 15 individuals in a tank I you know, maintained for about three or four years. Now, ironically, the difficulty started when I had time to really get into taking care of the fishes and took more initiative and control of the breeding. I ultimately slowly lost the entire colony, which was sad, but it taught me a valuable lesson. Sometimes what we would classify as benign neglect is actually the best thing that we can do, the closest imitation to nature that we can offer fishes in captive environments. Part of what makes the job of the hobbyist so enjoyable is this search for knowledge, the camaraderie that arises from our community, you know, putting their heads together to answer great questions, and sometimes just to share war stories with fellow fish geeks to learn and grow together as a community, and occasionally to just laugh at our own absurdities. Not long ago, I recall walking into my office early one morning, and I immediately was taken aback. Apparently... I had apparently messed with the time settings on the lighting app for one of my LED lights when I was tweaking a color setting because, you know, that's what fish geeks do, right? And I caused the light to stay on almost 20 hours before I realized that I messed it up. And no biggie, right? I mean, it happens. Except that I recently added some cool, you know, wild kerosens to this tank. And after weeks of careful acclimation and quarantine and they were settling in and then, you know, this has to happen and you know where I'm going with this. I was, what was going through my mind was, oh my God, the fishes didn't get any dark period. They've been seriously stressed. I mean, ridiculous. Now, some of you will say that this wouldn't bother you, but you're totally full of shit because it would bother the shit out of you too. I know it would. If you're not, you're not a fish geek. Being bothered about ridiculous stuff is part of what we do as fish geeks. Just admit it. Now, never mind that the delicate wild fishes had endured, you know, the rigors of being captured, traveled to a collecting station, a wholesaler, all these insults, and then to my local fish store. That, that shit wasn't stressful enough, right? And guess what? They freaking lived. Yeah. Of course, I relayed this concern I had to my wife later in the day when we were touched base and we're asking each other how you know, things are going. And my wife, who's absolutely not a fish geek, yet ever the pragmatist, she noted, you know, Scott, sometimes unexpected things happen in the Amazon. And I was like, whoa, you're right. She was onto something there. She was right. 
Everything in nature, like in society, is not a linear routine, predictable path. Shit happens. Yet we worry and we panic and obsess. And it's not just me who freaks out about stuff like this. I know it for a fact. We all do. I think that as fish hobbyists, we tend to get caught up in every little minute detail of the little worlds we've created for our fishes, so much that we often forget the one underlying truth about them. They're living creatures which have evolved over eons to adapt and deal with changes in their environment, big and small, or even insignificant, like an excessive amount of light one evening. I mean, there must have been some precedent for this, some atmospheric phenomenon, some combination of phenomenon, which rendered the night sky above the Amazon inordinately bright one evening at some point in the long you know, history of the world. Yeah, exactly. Think about it more for just a second. I think that this high level of concern, this overkill, if you will, on the part of all hobbyists is based on the fact that we take great pains to assure that we've created the perfect little captive environment for our fishes and to do everything we can to keep them stable and consistent. When something out of the ordinary happens, a pump fails, a heater sticks in the on position, we forget the feed, whatever. We tend to get a little bit, I don't know, crazy. Look, I get it. When a critical piece of environmental control equipment fails, like a heater, especially during a cold spell or a heat wave, it could be life or death for your fishes. If you're about to spawn a particularly picky fish or rear some fry, it could be a serious problem. You can't really downplay that. However, some of the less dramatic, non-life-threatening issues, such as, oh, well, I'd stay on or off one evening, a circulating pump stopping unexpectedly for a few hours or forgetting to change the carbon in the filter one week. They don't really create that much of a problem for your fishes when you really think about it objectively, do they? Nah. At some time during the existence of our fishes in the wild, there was a temporary blockage in the stream in which they resided, slowing down the normal flow of water. At some point, there might have been a once-in-a-century cold morning in the tropics, right? At some point, perhaps swarms of Daphnia or Catus fly larvae that were so abundant for months at a time just weren't. In most instances, the reality is that the animals that we keep are not so delicate and the closed environments we keep aren't running so close to the edge that we should panic when some random factor changes things up one day. Again, what I mentioned already bears repeating. When we purchase our fishes, they're unceremoniously netted out of the tank or stream or river or whatever, that, that environment that they've resided in. They're placed in a plastic bag, transported for how knows, who knows how long and possibly making stops on the way before ultimately landing in an aquarium. That's a lot of changes to cope with, a lot of stress. But guess what? Fishes manage to deal with it somehow. Sure, our first choice is to have rock-solid parameters and environmental conditions for our fishes 24-7, 365. But sometimes stuff happens that throws the proverbial wrench into our plans. We have to be adaptable. We have to be flexible, just like our fishes apparently are. So next time your light doesn't come on or you forget to feed your fishes as you rush off to work some morning, don't stress over it. They'll be fine. Keep calm. Always keep your concern high. Find out what might have went wrong if something goes wrong. But don't let obsessing over your fishes keep you from focusing on the more important things in life. You know, there's a few, right? And remember, sometimes unexpected things do happen in the Amazon. Sometimes we don't have the answers for everything. Sometimes we don't have to overthink this stuff. And sometimes the unexpected can trigger some beneficial or even amazing consequences. And sometimes taking a sort of hands-off approach is actually the way to go. There's so much to learn in this hobby, so much to think about, and so many opportunities to overthink stuff. It's almost impossible to eliminate any probability of failure in our aquariums, especially when we're dealing with variables like living creatures, dynamic chemical environments, and complex system designs. Even the most simple, low-concept aquatic display has literally dozens of potential failure points each which could cause consequences ranging from annoying to tragic, depending on how they manifest themselves. 
We just need to learn to relax, look at the realities of what's actually happening in our tanks and adjust if needed. Stay flexible, stay brave, stay curious, stay thoughtful, stay calm, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tin and Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tint.